Hey everybody, welcome to Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. I'm your host Jason Hobbs and today I've got something special for you. I'm joined by two great guys, Eric the Hoff Hoffman and Jose Carlos of the Panhandle Lacarios. Hey guys, what's going on? Eric, you're first. Hey, what's up? Uh, my cactus's name is Carlos. <laughs> so I've been uh, discussing with these two and actually another guy, Paul Wolf, who may join us sometime. And uh, we've been wanting to talk about exactly uh, what hex crawls are. I mean, I'm constantly referring to emergent storytelling and uh, random encounter tables and tables for everything. And I couldn't think of two better. Well, I could have, but these are the only two guys I could find. So <laughs> I got these guys on. <laughs> that fell pretty flat. Uh, <laughs> how you guys doing? Eric, what have you been doing in gaming this week? Anything, buddy? Yeah, so the only thing I've been doing is I ran on just an amazing, amazing session of my uh, of my BX Open Table campaign based in the borderlands of B2 last night, and it was really fun. Everyone who showed up had a great time. Let me tell you, that's absolutely true. This is Jose. Uh, the game last night was probably one of the better sessions we've ever had. I don't know what was different, but it was a lot of fun. There was a lot of storytelling, a lot of role-playing. We had a good time. We made a lot of progress. We progressed the campaign a lot. It was uh, it was pretty epic. Yeah, I was busy myself last night playing in Christopher Sneezak's awesome 5e game. It was <laughs> Session Zero, which are very important for any game you're ever going to play. You know Session what I'm zero, saying? Zero, that's like a story thing where you guys talk about your feelings? Our character's feelings, thank you. Okay, yeah, same difference. Although last week I did, uh, in the last couple of weeks I've actually ran uh, Kalmata and uh, uh, Eric was missing in that, but Jose, you got to play in that, right? Yes, that was also very fun. Um, also, another uh, game I get to play in weekly. Uh, it keeps me from having to run a game right now. All right, so that's that. Uh, it didn't quite take five minutes, so but I, I really felt like you guys don't need that much of an introduction unless you have anything else you want to say. No, no, we're good. We're, we're ready to get into the meat of the uh, topic. All right, so as I was mentioning, I got something special, and this is it. This is Hex Talk. That's something cool or just use Jose's. All right. So what I really wanted to talk about, and I've had a couple people ask me two different things, really. Uh, basically, you know, what it actually are you talking about when you say a hex crawl? And uh, also, when you run your hex crawl games, how do you run them? So uh, basically what that means, you can run, you know, online. I do a lot of online play, and obviously you guys do too because that's – I've never met you before, Jose. So Yeah, like – it's, that's a joy. Continue. <laughs> I'm just lucky that way. So, Eric, what do you think? I, I wanted to ask you this, I guess, because do you think it's easier to run a hex crawl online or in person? Or what would be your preferred method? Well, yeah, that's that's interesting. When we were just talking about this before, I said it really doesn't matter. But then you, you pointed out that with the a lot of the tools you have uh, online, like specifically Fog of War, multiple layers to the to the shared map it actually is easier online and uh, I hadn't really thought about that but it's absolutely true so those kind of things like using the roll 20 platform or really any virtual tabletop allows the GM to have uh, a lot more going on on the map in the old days you had to just like keep two separate maps and it wasn't as interactive so I know on my hex crawl that I run online 
I have a whole layer in the GM layer of what's out there in the world that's hidden. So I can have it with just literally the click of a button, change it from the GM layer to the player layer, and then there it is, um, which is pretty cool. So I would definitely have to say online is uh, is pretty some pretty cool tools with the technology that allows you to run a, a hex crawl really a lot smoother than, than in person. Yeah, I would agree. Jose, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'm going to say that it's it's actually almost impossible to run it in person. I'm going to tell you why, too. Here's why. Players will throw curveballs at you every second. That's what happened to us just yesterday when we were playing in Eric's, again, super epic game. Hobbs missed it. Ha, ha, ha. We had an idea to um, – basically, the idea was – Exactly the opposite of what Eric was thinking. So he had to, on the fly, find a map, come up with an idea for that map, hide that stuff on that map, and and basically come up with a night's session right then and there. Now, you can do that in person, but you have to carry extra maps or you have to have maps to reference. You're going to have to draw that stuff. You're going to have to have tokens or miniatures. With an online game, Roll20 or... You know, any of those online tabletops, that stuff is there for you. You've got Google to help you out. You've got, you know, gigabytes of storage on your machine to help you out. So it's just infinitely easier to take care of that stuff. Yeah. Just to add that my for myself, I've been considering running, you know, my Kalmata game at a convention or something or as a pickup game and just whoever showed up could play. But then I'm like, how the hell am I going to have all this stuff there in order for you to do it, especially if I got to fly there? It's going to be obviously I'm going to have to use like my tablet and my um, my laptop, but still it would be kind of a pain. And we kind of referenced a few different applications that you can use to help you run a, any game, honestly, but specifically for a, a hex crawl type game. Roll twenty is the uh, virtual tabletop that uh, we usually use, and I, the only other one I've ever really used is Map Tools, and I kind of hated that because it was an application you constantly had to go and download and then update on your computer. Whereas with Roll20, I mean, you just you just click on the link and you're there. So I find that a lot easier. Uh, either of you guys use any other virtual tabletops? I played Fantasy Grounds a bit here and there. I played a couple campaigns on there, actually, with some of the guys who were developing it. And that's really pretty, but it takes a lot of upfront kind of coding work to make sure your game's all in there. It's beyond my capability to do. The only reason that it worked great was because I was playing with some of the guys who were developing it. So I used Map Tools for a long time. I ran a two and a half year online West Marches game using Map Tools, and it's a steeper learning curve than Roll Twenty. But once you get it, it, it actually is pretty powerful. You can do a lot of stuff with it, and uh, uh, we enjoyed that. But it was before Roll Twenty had hit its stride. Uh, it was it was pretty right when it came out. It was pretty weak. What was that other tabletop forge? That's what I'm thinking of on the, that came before Roll20 and then got rolled into it. What about you, Jose? Have you used any other virtual tabletops? No, uh, similarly, I've used mostly Roll20, especially for hex crawls. But uh, like Eric, I've used uh, Fantasy Grounds. I actually ran 5e in that. And like he mentioned, it runs really, really great if you're going to run uh, prepackaged adventures. I ran, you know, Lost Minds of Fandelver, and then I started the... Uh, uh, the Tiamat, whatever that session, whatever that campaign was, I started that in there and those were already made for me. So they ran brilliantly. If I had to put my own stuff in there, it'd be a little bit of upfront work. That's pretty much what I've used in terms of, of tabletops. All right. So on the, uh, on my notes here, I've mentioned, uh, 
not only for online games, but for making hex maps and stuff, a very good application is Hexagrapher. I know you use it, Eric. Have you ever used it, Jose? I have, indeed, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty sweet. I mean, it makes them look old school with the icons and such. And they just ran a Kickstarter for a new one, isn't that right? Yeah, they did. And I, I, the backers have the beta already. I haven't messed with it yet, but I um I got the download. It's, it's like Worldographer or something, too? Yeah. Inkwell Ideas, I, I believe, is who does that. Yeah, and that's a Java app. This, I'm sorry, I, I wanted to interrupt real quick. Java app, which which is you know nice and multi-platform, and that was one of the nice things about Map Tools. Uh, Eric mentioned is Map Tools is Java, and once you get past making sure your Java works, you know Java is available for everyone, which was a nice thing to have when you didn't have Roll Twenty running in the browser back in the day. I mean, I hope that covers it. Matt Jackson, you're the one who asked what what I usually use. And I guess I didn't mention that we use Hangout for audio and visual because I don't really like the Roll20 as much because it takes up a lot of the screen on the map that I like to, to use personally. Do you guys, is, it, is that why we use Hangout? Is that what you think or what? Well, I think when it started, the voice and video in Roll20 wasn't um, integrated real well. And like you said, it does take up space. For me, I have a multi-monitor setup, so... I like to have it undockable so that I can have everybody's picture in one side and then the map completely open on the other. I agree, too, because I can focus on the game on one screen, and then I can see your ugly faces on the other. And it's kind of nice to see the people you're playing with. So a lot of times we play with our cameras enabled. Yeah, definitely cameras enabled, but I only have one screen, so I flip back and forth, and most of the time I'm not paying attention to one or the other. That's when I'm not, you know, surfing the internet because your games are boring. But other than that, no, I'm just kidding about that last part. So uh, what about any tools just for uh, if you're running a tabletop game or a hex crawl on a tabletop? Eric, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, so, I mean, there's all the published stuff, right? I mean, you got to have a map, and um, we were talking about this before, but the uh, the original Dungeons & Dragons book, one of the required things to have was the Outdoor Survival Game by Avalon Hill. And that was a hex map, right, of a wilderness location. The the game was originally made to simulate, like, surviving in the woods and getting lost. And I guess uh, you, Gary Gygax's group used it as for ad hoc wilderness adventure. So, you know, if the guys had to leave the dungeon go, to go back to town, they would actually transition to that board. And, and that's really the origin of the hex crawl. Is, is that game, which just happened to be a wilderness hex map. And then they made up rules for converting the just wilderness map to a medieval. So like the catch basins were castles and um, the shacks were towns, etc. It has mountains and woods and a swamp and rivers and stuff like that. So there you go. All really a hex crawl is, is it's just an outdoor dungeon, right? Where Every room has six exits. Basically, if you just look at it that way, that's just, that's just all it is, right? And each hex is a room, but it just encompasses some matter of miles. And it can contain, instead of containing, you know, an orc and pie, it might have three dungeons, two lairs, and a town in it. And each one of those, it's just a level up, you know? Think about like a Google map and zooming in and zooming out. That's really it. But from a play perspective, it's, it's, like I said, it's just, a dungeon, every room with six exits. And that's true. It feels, when you think about it, it is exactly that. It's a natural evolution of a dungeon crawl because it's the same thing in a dungeon crawl. You make a dungeon map, you populate it, you hide it from the adventurers, and they walk through it slowly exploring it. The same thing happens in a hex crawl. You create a hex map, you populate it. It just has a lot of more stuff on a macro level, 
and then you hide the whole thing and the players explore it the same way. That's, it's exactly an evolution. That's, that's interesting. Yeah, for sure. I would agree on that. I don't want to get too deep into how we do a hex crawl or that because I'm hoping to have more episodes in the future concerning that. And we only have so much time and I really want to just to have a broad uh, description or a definition of what hex crawling is and maybe some examples that people could, you know, research or look up or talk about. I didn't want to mention one more uh, tabletop, uh, you know, I guess resource that I really find to help a lot is uh, the Black Blade Publishing hex map that has on one side, it's a whole pad of paper. And on one side, it's got like a larger scale hex and then a bunch of hexes inside of it. And then you can define like if the, at the high level, you know, it was a, the big map, uh, the big hex is a 24 mile hex. Then all the hexes on the smaller hexes are six mile hexes. Or if it's a six mile hex, then it goes down and it's just, I think it's a pretty handy thing. Do you have either of you guys have that stuff? Yep. I've got a couple pads of the black blade hex um, paper. And then also you just reminded me, I'm pretty sure I was, I just grabbed it off my shelf. I'm pretty sure Peter Regan puts it out. I think his company is Square Hex out of the UK. And I hope I'm getting it right. I know that's, that's, that's Peter's company, but he does a booklet. It's called a campaign booklet. So it starts off with like a big hex map. And then the next couple pages are just, you know, lines for descriptions. And then as you flip through the book, then it's got a square grid graph paper with like more kind of like a one page dungeon setup and it just keeps going there's a bunch of those and then there's some smaller regional hex maps so basically the idea is you put you can put a entire hex crawl sandbox campaign in this one booklet it's really neat and then the cool thing what he did was the outer cover is a laminated battle mat so if you fold it out flat you've got like a whatever eight and a half by 11 is folded out battle mat that you can put minis on is a really really cool idea and i've never really i got it because i bought something else he did the bx monster little flip chart that has like all different monsters in it and this was on the site so i picked it up and i was really pleased with it but i really haven't heard a lot of people talking about it but um, check it out that sounds pretty awesome actually all right i think that pretty much covers that the next thing i got on here is uh trying to define what a hex crawl is. I mean, and you you just mentioned another one of the buzz terms that usually goes around with hex crawl, which is the sandbox. Who wants to tackle this? Eric, Jose, which one of you guys want to do it? Not it. <laughs> All right. Carrying you guys on my shoulders as usual. <laughs> so, yeah, so sandbox, right? It's like you think about kids in a sandbox, anything goes, right? You can just do whatever you want, and that's the the idea behind a sandbox campaign where the players really have complete agency, right? So, you know, you give them a map, like this is everything around you. You're in this, you start in this town. What do you want to do? And, uh, you know, if they want, they can just start marching north with, you know, no rations and no purpose. And, hey, fine, knock yourself out, right? But that's the idea. There's the, uh, the GM will populate things out in the sandbox, but also it usually implies some randomness too to how the campaign progresses. Really, it's just the, it's the opposite of a story arc, right? The, the the word story arc and sandbox are like pretty much opposite ends of the spectrum of, of styles of play. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned that uh the randomness. I think that's a that's a big aspect of it too, especially for the GM. And you could probably speak more on this, but the GM in a in a sandbox game or a hex crawl game will typically have random tables for just 
a huge variety of things for encounters or interesting things to happen in town for things, uh, interesting things for the characters to buy for weather, basically for everything. So one of the nice things about that emergent play from that randomness is the GM gets to play too. He gets to set it all up. He gets to get his random tables and then he gets to watch that group of idiots run around and break things. So he gets to have his fun and he's not just reading out of like, you know, a script or, uh, having to read room by room descriptions. He, he's gonna, he's as surprised as the players about what's gonna happen because he doesn't know what they're gonna do. I'm not usually surprised because I'm pretty sure they're gonna fuck things up pretty bad and look like idiots, but, uh, it is, it is a game for the GM for sure, I would say. Wouldn't you say, Eric? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in fact, I'm, I, I'm kind of at the maturity in my gaming styles and time available that I, I couldn't even run a campaign that wasn't based like that. Uh, I would lose interest. I'd run a few sessions and then just drop it. But for me to keep interested, I've really got to be like, like Jose said, I need to be surprised. I need to be a player too, um, as a GM. And that's the fun of it. It also allows you to really root for the players, right? If you're not fudging roles, you know, I can be on your side and be like, oh no, and sympathize with you when, when you, uh, you know, you get some bad beats or, you know, you accidentally, or, or, you know, that dragon comes up on the wandering monster table instead of, you know, smooth sailing and blue skies. It's, you know, it's, it's really fun for the GM to take part in it and be really just, really, you're just translating what you've already set up ahead of time as the possibilities and just translating that as a neutral observer to the players. And I think that's really the spirit of the original game, not really controlling it, but just being the narrator. Yeah, I would agree with that. There, You just have an unbiased opinion as the GM where, well, this is what's happening. You know, what are you guys going to do? And you don't, you don't have that confliction of trying to have a story ahead of time that you're trying to keep people on or any rails or anything like that. It's pretty much just an open situation that you – you know, you're the player's senses, and that's and that's pretty much all you do, uh, and that's pretty cool. Go ahead, Jose. Yeah, I was just going to mention that randomness also, I think, brings a level, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but a level of imbalance to the game that players, some players who's, who are not used to OSR-style games might not be used to in that there's no uh, there's no balancing of encounters a lot of times in hex crawls. You might come upon something that is too dangerous for you to take care of. You might, you might descend into a place and that first encounter, most of you are wiped out or close to being wiped out. And you might have to say, you know, this is not for us. We need to leave. And some players who are used to a, a more modern play style might think that every encounter is tailored for them and they've got six to eight encounters before it's time to rest. And those players end up going through lots and lots and lots of characters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, it's great. I was running that uh, West Marches campaign I was talking about, and the group I was running it for really like 3.5. That was just what they knew, and it was a kind of a diverse group from different groups of friends. So we were running 3.5, but I was really running it an old-school way. And, you know, at one point, I remember this guy who didn't really get old-school was playing a druid and was complaining at the cha- at the challenge level of an encounter and he was like, well, I should already have a magic scimitar and this and this and this by this level. And and I was like, man, we're playing a different game, you and I. 
Yeah, if someone coming from 3.5 into that, they will be stunned because in 3.5, you lovingly craft your character from books and you cross-pollinate crap from everywhere. And in the OSR, most of the time you're like, I'm a fighter, I got a sword. <laughs> and then you're off into whatever's going to happen. And when they come into that game, yeah, you're right. I can see it would be a huge wake-up call for them to try to adjust. I would love <laughs> to see that. <laughs> All right. So hopefully that did fine. And if anyone has any questions, as always, you know, feel free to ask. So Eric's mentioned the West Marches a couple times. So maybe this is a good uh, uh, segue into popular types of play that usually involve hex crawls. So our games that we run, Eric and I and Paul Wolf, are, we call them open table. When we say an open table game, so what that's supposed to mean is that at any time, anybody can come and play in the game. There's not just, you know, these six players have these six characters and they're running through their campaign. It's more like, like for myself, I have 20 people in the Kalmata community. Now, I'm not saying 20 different people have played the game so far, but I would easily say over a dozen have and obviously never at the same time. But that's kind of what the concept of the open table is. So uh, one of you guys want to... Jose, do you want to describe West Marches, or do you want to let Eric do that? You can do that, but I'll, I'll also expand that I ran. I also ran Open Table, but more on a dungeon crawl when I was running Stonehell Dungeon. It was the same thing. You might have any amount of people one day. You might have six players one night. You might have I, – I had ten players one night and people just waiting to play. It was just one of those weird things. And then a couple – you know, the next session, you might only have three or four players. That's just the nature of open table. You never know what you're going to have. All right, so let's get into West Marches then, Eric. Uh, sure, yeah. So West Marches was kind of a style of gaming that kind of came out of, gosh, probably like 10 years ago, but a guy named Ben Robbins in the, uh, he had a blog, Ars Ludi, Ars Ludi, where he described a campaign he was running, and basically he, it was called the West Marches campaign, and the idea was that a couple of the features of it was that it was several groups of people and they were there was no regular party so it was like i think it was like because a couple different people wanted him to run a game at the same time so there were multiple groups of characters all running around the same world together it was sandboxy in that he created the regions and like and different wandering and random encounters for the regions to make them feel separate and it was like in a wilderness area to the west of a civilized area, right? So it was West Marches. And uh, the groups would go out and try and find centers where, you know, like dungeons or places where there was treasure, and they would go out and try and, you know, crack that dungeon and then return. And the idea was that there was no regular session. The players would kind of get together, small groups of them, and say, hey, we want to go raid the monastery in such and such a place. And then he would say, okay, I'm, I can play on Thursdays. And so they would go do that. And it was very kind of freeform, it was an open table. Players came and went, multiple characters, and kind of they were all back at the town for dinner, as Paul Wolf likes to say, which is how I kind of run my Keep on the Borderlands campaign, so that every time that people go back out, you know, they kind of – different groups can form, and it's okay because everyone's back at a central location that really isn't the focus of the adventure. It's just where people kind of stable their characters. So those are kind of the tenets of uh, – and, and if you – Really want Ben does a great job of explaining exactly the rules he set up for the campaign on his blog. Again, it's Ars Ludi if you want to get more in-depth. In I'll put a link in the show notes for that, of course. And I'd, I'd like to add that 
part of the concept of that is actually to alleviate the GM from having to do some of that story stuff where you say, all right, you're all meeting in a bar. They don't have to do any of that. They don't have to say, okay, you guys found yourself on this caravan. There's none of that as the GM because the players are responsible for gathering the group and the goal of the session. All the GM is doing is then just like an unbiased participant is just telling them what they see when they go and do that specific goal. So I think it's a way to alleviate uh, some of the GM's upfront workload in that respect. For sure. I think is really cool, but so far I haven't really seen that happen too often in any of the uh, open table games we've been playing. In. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's you know I ran that style for for two and a half years and it it worked pretty well, but it's kind of I don't know I, people had more flexible schedules I guess, but yeah, it's tough to do. <laughs> um, but I stole that example of like rooting for the players. I, I remember this when I read that blog a long time ago. Is I think the words he used were. It's not me killing you on the moor. It's the dire wolf that was randomly rolled, right? So it's like, you know, hey, you're just completely a neutral observer, and, you know, players can't complain when just bad luck happens. I feel that way when I'm running the game, too. There is no – most of the stuff you build so far ahead – I don't want to get too far into this, but most of the work for the GM is done ahead of time. You know, they're having an idea of what the uh, the sandbox is and what it encompasses, and – an idea of what's going on there. Like maybe they have some tables for each region or whatever, and they've got some uh, layers that they can just bring in anytime they want to when that comes up. Or they have like a dungeon or something. Like many times in my game, I've had a lair or a ruin show up uh, in Kalmata, and I don't even have a map for it. So I just got to throw something in together. And I take five minutes, the players all laugh at me, and they're all excited because they caught me off guard or whatever. And then, okay, five minutes later, now we're going into you know another layer, and they're learning more stuff about the backdrop of the setting, which I was going to talk about cloud games, but really that's the exact same thing. It's the whole concept of different clouds of people wanting to play a game and getting their group together and then asking the GM if they're uh, available. So it's basically this whole West Marches plus open table put together. So I guess that pretty much covers that. Do you have anything to add, Jose? No, I mean, definitely. I've played in both your games and they're definitely, you know, the way you describe West Marches, both of your games uh, fit that to a T, you know, we normally have a player hub where we can get the players together and hire henchmen and get gear. And then a lot of times we started with a blank map and we slowly work our way out. And I'm imagining as a GM, you normally will have it, like you said, have a few dungeons ready close by that you think the players will find. Maybe you'll drop a hint or two to steer them in the right direction. And then you you got some random maps, and that's exactly how both of these games have progressed that I've played in. Both of your games have have done the same thing. We found locations, we've explored them, and then sometimes we've gone there or decided not to and gone somewhere else. And and it's really uh, just basically up to the player at that point. I'll add that Paul's Philic Isles game is is almost identical to that. Usually, the GM is going to add some rumors. That'll help guide the player characters or maybe happenings that can also occur randomly, of course. But yeah, I would say all three of those games have that feeling. And I honestly, I haven't really played too many other games that have that. But I guess two is probably enough <laughs> for any lifetime. Uh, one other uh, buzzword or a common thing people talk about in the same context is is the point crawl. Which for me, I found out about really from Chris Kudelik's, uh Slumbering Ursine Dunes. And I actually created one for my Kalmata game, and it's a lot of fun. It's this whole uh, concept of one of these areas or regions that 
you don't necessarily define the way to get from one place to another. I used it for a, a labyrinthine maze-like area created by giant worms, basically, is the whole idea. And so without trying to make players walk through this maze endlessly and have things happen to them, I basically just had a series of uh, ideas that I used for making dice rolls until they could get to a specific area. But uh, while they're on their way, they're going to lose some of their resources from random encounters or wandering monsters. Does anyone have anything else to add about point crawls or any other buzzwords or anything? Interestingly enough, a lot of a lot of times our games not I don't want to say devolve, but they devolve into point crawls um, when we're going from interesting location to interesting location in your campaigns. For instance, if we want to go to that ruined temple and we've been there before, a lot of times it breaks down into kind of a rote kind of routine of okay, we're going to head there. There's one place we usually get ambushed. Let me check for that randomness. If it's not there, we get there. So we're right there at that point. We just skip that whole bit, and we can go from there and back and skip everything in between once we've explored that area. Yeah, I would agree with that. I never thought about it like that, but totally, Eric's the ambush point, we would always call it. <laughs> we would call it the ambush point, definitely from Eric's <laughs> Borderlands campaign. Well, it was uh, natural, right? The monsters just use the terrain like players, right? That's right. Those damn lizard men, they'd always be waiting for us right there at that crook in that canal. Yeah. Well, <sighs> it didn't help that the fat adventurers, you know, wounded and full of treasure, always took the same road back to the keep. So. Yeah, chanting about our prizes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, there's only one road, so, I mean, what do you want us to do? That's true. That's true. For people who want to read up on uh, what a hex crawl is or how to build their own and they don't want to wait a few weeks in between until we our series gets to that point. I thought I would mention a couple uh, people that I would say are popular in this area or the niche of the niche of the niche of what gaming is, uh, and that would be Welsh Piper. He's got a blog. Uh, I think it's called Welsh Piper. I'll have show notes in it. And then also Rob Connolly has uh, his blog, Bat in the Attic, has a um, like a 30, 35-step process of how to create – uh, the sandbox or 35 steps. Damn. Yeah. It's like crazy. It's, it's pretty advanced and pretty uh, detailed. So does anyone else have anything that they want to toss in here quick about that? Yeah. There's a ton of products out there now that kind of do all the work for you that you just have to, you just have to do back in the day. So I'll throw out there. I mean, first of all, going all the way back to, to the ready ref sheets from judges guild, um, pre, you know, basic D and D advanced D and D ton of stuff there if you can get a copy of those. I think there's some reprints flying around. I think Goodman's doing reprints. But you've got Simon Forster has a series, The Book of Layers, where it basically gives you like 20 – it's the alphabet, right? So it's 26 different little mini layers and dungeons that you can populate a sandbox with. Altarks, Layers and Encounters, Richard LeBlanc has the D30 Companions. It's the D- D30 DMs Companion and Sandbox Companion. I mean, you get a couple of those books, and you can basically run a open table sandbox hex crawl with the tables presented to you, and it would be a load of fun. Yeah, that's what you basically need. You need one of them big-ass books of random tables, and you're ready to go, basically. Uh, you, every book, every system you have is already going to have monsters. Most of the time, they're going to have random encounter tables by region. If not, you've got Google and... Thousands of resources for that. You basically, that's what you need. I, I, we're going to get into that a little bit more specifically, I think. So I'm not going to go any further. But yeah, you're right. There's there's a ton of things already available. All right. So Eric mentioned actual printed things on me. But 
when he said Lair's Encounters, that's not all acts Adventure Conquer Kings has. I mean, the the main book is basically tells you to create a hex and how to populate it and everything's in there that goes right along with their economy-based concepts. So all that stuff is in there and is written pretty crunchily. And Labyrinth Lord Kevin Crawford has a book called An Echo Resounding, which he uses his tags to kind of do the same thing uh, by creating a, a hex crawl or sandbox environment uh, that interacts with uh, the players and itself as the game goes on, which any hex crawl should really do anyway. Actually, a lot of scene nominee at Kevin Crawford books have a lot of hex crawl and that style of gaming uh, resources to support that. He's a, he's a big proponent of that. Absolutely. And Echo Resounding, it was his original fantasy one before he went into uh, space or gods or any of those other ones. So I've never actually seen it in print, but uh, you can get a PDF of it. And it's actually pretty fascinating. If you don't like all the crunch of uh, acts or having to roll all the stuff yourself, and this this is a way of kind of doing it a little more simply, but it still has the same feel as a GM and as a player. So that's pretty cool. All right. So uh, briefly, I'm going to we want to have more of these uh, Hex Talk episodes, basically make it a series. And uh, these are some of the things we were thinking about talking about, you know, some of the components of a Hex Crawl, which we, we went into briefly here, but not very much. An example of one, maybe we would build one as we do it, maybe make up some tables and about some regions and kind of make up something that, uh, you know, I could uh, release somehow to patrons and everyone really, whatever, we'll make it free since these guys are helping me because it would be bad. Uh, you guys have anything else you might want to add to the series in the future? I would, I would love to talk with you guys more about it and build one from the ground up, kind of start from a starting location and talk about, uh, the pieces that go into that and how to make that location viable for the players and interesting because both of your starting areas are interesting and then how to generate, uh, locations and kind of, kind of get the players started in there. I think there's a lot of, a uh, lot of areas for us to explore. You got anything specific you want to add as far as that goes, Eric? No, I think that'd be great. I think also, like talking about ways to make, I don't want to steal Goodman's tagline, ways to make it not suck, but just like lessons learned from how to make random tables work together in interesting ways and and really keep the DM and players on their toes would be cool too. Yeah, I would really like talking about how you make your random tables compared to me and like uh, one of my original sandbox GMs I ever played with, Brian Tackle, uh, by rolling multiple D20s and then having it all in one table that you can reference at once, like a drop table too would be interesting in that way. But anyway, so those are some thoughts. And uh, uh, if anyone wants to contact any of us about any of this, that'd be awesome. I'll give out some ways to get a hold of us later. All right. But first I want to move on to uh, uh, some other uh, things like talking about our awesome patrons of Hobbs and Friends with the OSR. Here's a three shout outs and you too can get a shout out if you uh, get on the Patreon. So this, this, uh, episodes uh, patrons are Rick Hull, uh, Steve Sigety, and Mike Jones. I'll uh, be looking forward to seeing Mike at uh, North Texas uh, in a few weeks, so that'll be exciting. Uh, I guess I should tell you, if you want to become a patron, you should uh, visit patreon.com, O-S-R-N Hobbs. Do you guys have any last things you want to talk about before I go through all these outro type things? Like anything you're working on, Eric, you want to mention? Oh, uh, no, not really. I'm a bunch of projects <laughs> up in the air right now. <laughs> Busy with work, and uh, I, too, am excited about North Texas. So that usually gets the juices flowing for the long summer for me to knuckle down on some projects. But, no, nothing to announce now. 
All right, cool. So I don't think you have anything, right, Jose? No, I was working on a mashed potato bust of Gary Gygax, but I got hungry. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so I promised to read these reviews quick. This one is from 190 Proof. He says, an awesome podcast for OSR fans, five stars. I love the casual atmosphere of the show. It's just Hobbs and a friend or two talking about the games they enjoy, and it's very entertaining. Great asset for the OSR community. And uh, this one is by Cody MF Maza, motherfucking Maza, apparently. <laughs> Excellente podcast, another five stars. A fantastic production, really well put together. Great sound quality if you can get past Hobbs' voice. Ha ha. Interesting topics and guests. Easily my favorite show at the moment. Keep up the great work, Jason. So uh, if anyone else wants to leave any reviews or subscribe, uh, some people say that helps other people find out about the show. I don't know about the veracity of any of that. I'm just a guy who talks about games. The OSR Encounter Contest. Hobbs and Friends of the OSR have joined up with uh, Gaming and BS. I think someone has something to say about Sean P. Kelly. Is that true, Carlos? Uh, Yeah, isn't he that dude that peed on that underage girl? <laughs> and Brett uh, Blazinski. Uh, so uh, go to the our community or the Gaming and BS community, and I have a link in there that will get you to this encounter contest that has some really nice prizes. And uh, I was kind of hoping more Hobbs and Friends listeners would get involved in that because so far it's just a bunch of gaming and BSers, and, and that's BS. So if you, anyone wants to reach you, Eric, how could they do it? Uh, on the Googles, uh, Eric Hoffman, uh, also StormlordPublishing.com. Um, how about you, uh, Carlos? Uh, they can find me on Google as well, and my ICQ number is 1985996. That's no joke. I believe it. Does that still exist? Um, <laughs> I hope so. If not, look, look, look me up on AOL Instant Messenger, uh, Pussy Crusher 420. <laughs> Uh, okay, so if you want to get me, you could do it more, you know, modern and get on the Twitters at Hobbs Indeed or OSRN Hobbs, or even better, go to the G Plus community for Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. Two hundred and sixty-five members strong. We're quickly catching up to those guys who think they're top-tier podcasters. Talking about you, R. Kelly. Trip, trip, trip. And Hobbs and <laughs> everyone, say good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. This podcast is a member of the Audio Dungeon Podcast Network. For more podcasts, visit audiodungeon.com.